Good morning, Jubilee. So uh, we're in Nehemiah chapter 5 today. So just as you start to turn to that um, in your Bibles, and it would be worth having it open in front of you, I'm going to pray for us. Father, we thank you that we can gather around your word in your presence. What what a delightful place to be that is. And uh, as we look at this passage today, this next stage in the story of Nehemiah, would you challenge our hearts, Lord? I pray now that right across Jubilee, as we're spread across the region, Lord, there would be an openness to your spirit in our hearts. Lord, may we be open to your challenge, open to the prompting of your spirit. And Lord, that you would speak so very clearly to us. Help me, I pray as I speak, that I'll speak with clarity um, and that is truth based on your everlasting, unchanging truth. Amen. So the story so far in Ezra and Nehemiah is that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes in Babylon. And he's traveled to Jerusalem. And he's gone there in order to restore the city. And his main task is to help rebuild the broken walls. This, of course, is the third stage in the return of God's people from exile in Babylon. The other two stages happened under Zerubbabel and then under Ezra. And you'll remember from right back at the start, we talked about the fact that the the restoration of God's people would include scattering the gathering the scattered people from all across uh, Babylon. There'd be the scorched temple, which would be rebuilt, and then the, the shattered city would be restored. And we're in the final bit of that as we look at Nehemiah. And two weeks ago, Becky Floy wonderfully laid out the basis of Nehemiah's return and his goal to restore the shattered city. And the wall building then progressed incredibly. 52 days it took for the whole wall to be complete. But in the midst of that remarkable restoration story, we have Nehemiah chapter 5. We read about a crisis. And today we're going to see what difficult work restoration actually is. And importantly, how Nehemiah handled the crisis. So the story begins with a great outcry. And I'm just going to read the first five verses of Nehemiah chapter 5. Now, there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, we, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were others who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields. And our vineyards. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already, and we are helpless because of our fields and vineyards belong to others. So there's a great outcry. Why is there a great outcry? There's a great outcry because there's injustice. And whenever there's injustice, there should be a great outcry. 
The three different groups of people here are in different situations, but the outcome is the same. So the first group we see in verse 2 are working hard, but they're short of labor in their fields. So they can't provide the food that their families need. The second group, they're landowners, but their fields and their vineyards and their homes have been mortgaged in order to pay for the grain that they're trying to eat from. And the third group, they're also landowners, but they've borrowed against their fields and against their vineyards in order to pay the king's tax. And the result for all three groups is the same. Suffering, poverty, and enforced slavery. Their sons and their daughters have gone into slavery. It sounds like their daughters have been sold off already as kind of, Wives to whoever. And the people have nothing left to combat it with. That that verse 5 finished with, we're helpless because our fields and our vineyards belong to other people. Let's just pause and allow the shock of that to sink in. The economic circumstances that the people find themselves in are such that it causes them to get to the point where they have to sell their sons and their daughters into slavery. That should shock us. That a society can get to the point where the only thing that people can think that they can do is to sell off their children. Not only that, but there are people who are willing to buy these children. And not only that, that there are people who are willing to act in a way that perpetuates and continues the circumstances that allow this suffering to happen. We should be shocked. And against this injustice, there is then a very strong and a very powerful response, which the rest of Nehemiah 5 outlines. And The first thing we notice in verse 6 is Nehemiah says, Then I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Nehemiah immediately engages his emotions. His heart is affected. And surely this is the only appropriate initial reaction to such injustice. Anger, outrage. I wonder... How often this happens to you? Do you watch the news and end up shouting at the TV? Do you throw down your magazine or newspaper or chuck your phone across the the room as you've read your social media feed when there's some sort of outrage that's needed, some kind of injustice? Do you ever weep? at the tragedy that you see unfolding on your screens? Do you allow yourself to feel this? Or have you become hardened to it? Have you, just this terrible news is just part of the daily grind and it washes over you now. Becomes so normal to see people suffering. I think the example of Nehemiah here would indicate that we need to get angry at injustice. We need to engage our hearts. 
And yet there's a danger with this. There's a danger that we just allow our emotions to surge and that we do outrage by posting something on Facebook. And that's it. Job done. I'm outraged. It's off my chest. Nehemiah was different. Well, he didn't have social media, I know. But he was different anyway. I was very angry and I heard their outcry in these words. I consulted with myself and then contended with the nobles and the rulers. Nehemiah set aside time to process, to think, to work through the problem and to formulate a plan. He engaged his head. He switched his mind on. His emotions were raised. His heart was engaged with the problem. And so he now engaged his mind and used his head. And he distilled this whole problem to one single charge. You are exacting usury or interest from your brothers. He thought through all of the injustice and he distilled it to a simple message. This is wrong. And on that basis, he acted. So, you see, it didn't just go from his heart to his head and stop there. It then moved out into his hands and he acted. He engaged in some action. He didn't just allow himself to anger and feel. He didn't just use his mind to analyse and critique. He used his hands for action. And so he contended with the authorities in verse 7 and he called a great assembly. So from the great outcry arises the great assembly. This is Nehemiah on the offensive, on the front foot, taking the fight to the people in the wrong, setting up the argument against them. And this great assembly was to deal with this issue of charging interest. And the reason for that is because the people were breaking the law. These people had been redeemed from the nations. They'd been brought back from exile to Israel. And Nehemiah saw this huge contradiction now that this people redeemed from exile only to end up being enslaved in their own land. And the words which he laid out against the nobles and against the officials struck like a hammer blow in verse 8. We, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. They had nothing to offer in their defence. They'd been absolutely nailed by Nehemiah. And so he continued, he took the challenge to them in verse 9. He says, again I said, this thing you're doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? And then he switches from challenging to pleading with them in verse 10. And likewise I, my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Please leave off this usury. Stop charging interest. Verse 11, give them back their fields this very day, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses and the interest, the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, the new wine and the oil that you've been exacting from them. He's basically saying instead of loans, there should be gifts. Give back to them. 
And remarkably, in verse 12, this is how they conclude. So I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to the promise. Because they've said, we will give it back, we will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. For me, there are echoes of Zacchaeus in this passage. You know that famously short but crooked tax collector who, when he met Jesus, gave away half his possessions and to anyone he's defrauded, he gave back four times as much. And here the people are saying, we'll give it back. We'll do, we will require nothing from them. We'll do exactly as you say. And then they take an oath on that. So this great assembly has led to the people taking an oath that they will do what God says. And so Nehemiah then provides a prophetic sign. I shook out the front of my garment and said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. I tell you what, if you have just taken that oath in that assembly, you would now be quaking. Because the prophetic sign which Nehemiah acts out basically says, this has now started. It's like many of you this week, I imagine that you went to your advent calendar on Tuesday and you opened door number one. And what you did in that moment was set in, set in motion a chain of events that leads to the 25th of, Christ, of December. Day after day, every one of them, the clock is now ticking towards the inevitable conclusion. And that's a tiny little bit similar to this, where the cloak is shaken out. The prophetic sign now says the clock is ticking. So you better keep your word. What a way to conclude the assembly. This great assembly. Injustice identified, sin called out, action agreed, an oath taken, a prophetic timing initiated, agreement is obtained, and then praise to God is given. All the people, after this prophetic sign, said, Amen, and they praised the Lord. And then the people act. They did according to this promise. So he gets them from sinful behaviour to action in the course of one assembly. And Nehemiah himself as the rest of the chapter, I haven't got time to go through this in detail now, but read the end of the chapter, verses 14 to 19. Nehemiah's example is incredible. As a governor, he could have taken a food allowance, but he chose not to. He didn't domineer over the people. He didn't lay heavy burdens on them and buy land from them. Instead, he and his servants worked. And they worked hard. And not only this, he set up a daily meal. I love this. A 150 Jews and officials sat around a daily banquet at his table. 150 of them. Not only that, in verse 17, it says 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. I love it. Nehemiah's response to this injustice is he sets up a daily banquet that reflects heaven. The Lord of Jerusalem with his subjects, and the nations gathered at the feast. Absolutely love that picture. Anyway, 
That's Nehemiah's example. But I, and the, really that's the story of Nehemiah 5. But I just want to backtrack a little bit and think about how it was that Nehemiah was able to distill this issue down to one thing, this charging of interest, and that he used that to tackle injustice. So he went back to the principles in the law. You see, it wasn't illegal to sell your property for money. It wasn't illegal to offer yourself as a hired hand. It was illegal to charge interest. And if you did need to sell your land or offer yourself into some sort of service, there was provision in the law for all of that to be returned at the year of Jubilee. And actually the cost of those things wasn't linked to the value of the land. It was linked to how many harvests were left. Because you were buying the harvests. You weren't buying the land. And what that did was, and I'd encourage you to go away and really meditate on Leviticus 25. What it did was it set up this system where the poor didn't get poorer and poorer and poorer. It set up provision to help them out of a tricky situation because, let's face it, any of them, any of us could end up poor. And it also set up a system where the rich couldn't continue to accumulate year on year on year. Everything was returned in the year of Jubilee. And it wasn't illegal. It was illegal to charge interest on loans, but it wasn't illegal to use loans. I'd just like to read you this couple of verses from Deuteronomy 24 about loans. When you make your neighbour a loan of any sort, you shall not enter his house to take his pledge. So you're allowed a pledge for the loan, but you're not allowed to go into his house and take it. You shall remain outside and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. If he is a poor man, You shall not sleep with his pledge. When the sun goes down, you shall surely return the pledge to him that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. It will be your righteousness to you before the Lord your God. You see, the most common type of pledge was the cloak, particularly if you were a poor man, because that was your possession. It was your clothes in the day. It was your blanket at night. And you weren't allowed to keep that overnight. It doesn't say that you give it back to him if he's returned the loan. It's you give it back to him when the sun goes down. You see, the reason that they weren't allowed to charge interest is because of the gifts of God lavished on his people. It was gifts, not loans. The reason that you shouldn't take an Israelite into slavery is because they've been redeemed from slavery by God. The reason that you should return your pledge before sundown is because it's always, the the onus is always on the ones with the privilege to make the concessions. You don't exploit, you give back. And too often in our society, the ones with the privilege benefit even further. It's who you know. And according to God's standard, that is not right. Never. I want you to 
spend a couple of minutes watching a film that the BBC published this week. You may well have seen it on the news. And just, yeah, just watch it, see what you make of it. And afterwards, I'm going to make a few concluding remarks based on the example of Nehemiah, but in this context for us. So there's going to be a film playing now. Reports like this can be overwhelming. And it's very easy to feel helpless in the face of that kind of thing. And that, that's Burnley. That's a couple of hours up the road. And let's not pretend it's not happening in Birmingham and in Solihull and in the towns and cities we live in. When we see things like that, it should affect our heart. It should make us feel outraged and angry and sad and shocked. It should affect our heart, head. What can we do? What solutions are there? Where's the injustice in this? What's the root of the issue? What does it look to bring the love of Jesus into this situation? To bring justice in the face of that injustice? It should affect our hands. So what is it that we do now? How can we act? In the face of such obvious need, what is it that the people of God can do? What can we as Jubilee do? The New Testament is really clear that this is a priority. Hebrews thirteen sixteen, And don't forget to do good and share with those who are in need. Galatians 6.10, so then, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who have the household of God. 1 John 3.17, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Galatians 2.10, they only asked us, to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. You see, now is the time for open hearts. Now is the time for us to remember the poor. Which brings us to the question of who are the poor. Well, the Bible often talks of this grouping of widows, orphans or the fatherless, immigrants or foreigners and the poor. Zechariah 7, verse 10, 11 is an example. Volterstorff calls them the quartet of the vulnerable. Very helpful. And I think today we could add other groups to those, that quartet of the vulnerable. We could add refugees. We could add migrant workers. We could add the homeless. We could add many single parents, many elderly. We could add children in care. We could add some zero-hour contract workers. We could add the disabled and we could add more. You see, the vulnerable are those who are least able to cope with the economic shocks like COVID, like Brexit. 2021 will see more vulnerable people than we have seen before in this nation, in our neighbourhoods. And the call on us 
is to take up their cause and to take up their care. I find Tim Keller really helpful on this as he talks about different levels of of, um, support that we can put in. And I'm just going to very briefly do it. I'm kind of in danger of of going on for a bit here, but I feel that this is really important to help give us a bit of a framework that we can then work with as a church. The first level of caring for the poor is relief. And this is the direct aid that meets an immediate physical or material need. And Some examples would be food banks, where there's an immediate need for a family to eat. It would be things like our very own children's storehouse, where clothing, a relief need, where a family needs that. But it could also be working with people who are at risk of suicide. Could be people who are isolated. Could be hardship funds. It's that direct aid that meets immediate need. So that's relief. The second level is development, where we give an individual or an individual or a family or a community is given what they need to move beyond that dependency on relief into self-sufficiency. So you will have seen some correspondence recently about the new debt advice and debt counselling, which Steve and Rich are looking to set up in next year. That would be in this category, because it's not direct aid, but it will give people the skills to move into that next level of self-sufficiency. But this is really broad. It could be literacy or numeracy classes. English is an additional language. It could be parenting classes. It could be helping people back into work, CV writing. It could be cooking classes. All sorts of things in that development. It's about helping people develop the skills in order to survive better. And the third level is social reform. This is where we seek to change the conditions that there are in wider society, the societal structures that aggravate or cause dependency. In our time, this could be dealing with issues around institutionalised racism could be things to do with the climate crisis, could be to do with inequality in educational opportunities or in housing or in all sorts of different things. What's interesting about Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 5 is that his actions, the way he engaged his hands, work at all three levels. So in terms of relief, because he insisted on the return of the interest that had been charged, they were then able to pay the tax. They were then able to obtain the grain that they needed. But by ensuring the return of the fields and the property, it meant that he was then working at a development level. Because it wasn't just immediate handouts, they now had fields which they could grow their harvests on. So they would be moving towards self-sufficiency again. But he also operated on the level of social reform by gathering the officials around his table every day. What do you think they talked about? I doubt it was the weather. 
But by reteaching and reapplying the law, behaviour was changed across society. And Nehemiah ensured that the systemic inequalities which had been promoted by previous governors stopped and were a thing of the past. So as we come to the end of this year, I feel there's a challenge for all of us. How are we going to respond? We must be a people who live out the two commandments to love God and love your neighbour. We need to frame everything through that. We must be a people who live out this jubilee vision which we say we believe in, that vision of freedom and release and justice. All of us should be moved to when we see injustice. All of us should be prepared to challenge inequity and inequality in our society. What or who has God put on your heart? For some of you, you see these societal structures that prop up injustice and inequality. You've been stirred by things this year, like the Black Lives Matter campaign. Some of you are really troubled by our consumerist lifestyles. And you can see ways that you could influence Jubilee. And then wider than that, if we were to change and modify our behaviours to lessen our environmental impact. You see that. And for you, that's a justice issue. And you're absolutely right. Some of you are stirred by modern day slavery, by human trafficking and the horrors that there are entailed in that. Some of you want to get involved in advocacy, in lobbying your MP, in setting up writing campaigns. Some of you see poverty and homelessness and want to do something. So the challenge is, do it. Your heart's engaged. Your head is engaged. It's time to engage our hands. Come and talk to us. The elders can't lead every project. We can't think of every need. We can't spearhead every initiative. But what we can do is lead us as a mobilised people to remember the poor. And that's what we're called to do. Part of restoring the city in which we live is to remember the poor. So Jubilee, let's rise up and do this.